Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. I say this calls for action, and now, nip it in the bud. Well, what I do is uh, I look a woman up and down, and I say, Hey, how you doing? And I hope you're doing well, everybody. This is Jim McCarrens with the good, the bad, and the TV on the Believe Podcast Network. It's the number one podcast network for professionals. You've heard that before. Let's believe in the good, the bad, and the TV. The year is 1975. And that sigh you're hearing is an entire long-haired, polyester-clad, bell-bottom-wearing country saying about the decade. Okay, halfway through. As declared by the United Nations, 1975 is International Women's Year. Among those celebrating, Margaret Thatcher, who becomes Britain's first female leader of any political party, and Connecticut's Ella Grasso, who becomes the first female governor in U.S. history to achieve the office without succeeding her husband. On the rough side of politics, a trio of men, well, they're not doing so well this year. John Mitchell, H.R. Haldeman, John Ehrlichman. They're all found guilty in their Watergate cover-up trials. Elsewhere in 1975, Bill Gates and Paul Allen found Microsoft in Albuquerque, New Mexico. The Vietnam War ends, more or less, with the fall of Saigon. The Louisiana Superdome opens in New Orleans. AM America comes to ABC Mornings, lasting just 10 months before turning into the more familiar, more successful Good Morning America. Wheel of Fortune comes to daytime on NBC. Jimmy Hoffa comes to an end somewhere. And the Lutz family's investment in their new home comes to a quick end 28 days after moving in. They can't get out of Amityville quick enough. Hey, speaking of horrors, 1975 also sees the opening of Space Mountain in Florida's four-year-old Disney World, redefining the steel roller coaster experience. Midway through the 1970s, there are game changers to be found all over the cultural landscape. For instance, Jaws is released and sets a new standard for the summer blockbuster. Springsteen's Born to Run album comes out and sets a new standard for rock album storytelling. NBC's Saturday Night begins on NBC's late night weekend shift and sets a new standard for generational comedy. Queen's Bohemian Rhapsody hits the radio and sets a new standard for the pop music single. E.L. Dr. O's Ragtime rises to the top of the bestseller list and sets a new standard for historical fiction. A Chorus Line makes its debut on Broadway and sets a new standard for the modern American stage musical. And Arthur Ashe beats nearly 10 years younger nemesis Jimmy Connors at Wimbledon and sets a new standard for black heroes. He's the first male African-American Wimbledon champ. Racial barriers fall on the small screen this year, too, as more and more TV content features more and more black faces. The 1960s, well, it does what it can when it comes to primetime representation amidst a time of social change, but most of the black faces it offers comes with all but mandatory white sidekicks. Be it a boss, George C. Scott to Cicely Tyson in East Side, West Side, a buddy, Robert Culp to Bill Cosby in I Spy, or Protector. Lloyd Nolan to Diane uh, Carroll in the sitcom Julia. The 1970s starred out promisingly and daringly enough with an all-black sitcom version of Neil Simon's Barefoot in the Park, 
which premieres in September of 1970. Starring Scoey Mitchell and Tracy Reed in the Robert Redford and Jane Fonda roles from the 1967 film, it marks Primetime's first all-black cast, not counting the Amos and Andy show of the 1950s, which very few people do. Parenthetically, about that show, let's put it this way. If Amos and Andy were a bronzed statue outside the New York Public Library, it would have been toppled protests ago. However, Barefoot in the Park never makes it past Christmas. No one watches. Even Bill Cosby's solo sitcom follow-up to I Spy, well, that only lasts two seasons. Most of the real advancements in black representation on TV, complete with high ratings, come in the form of Movies of the Week that the networks are making more and more of. Flip Wilson, of course, is making history by killing in the ratings, but his is a variety show, and he's wearing a dress. It's actually not until 1972 that TV has its first smash hit with an all-black cast. Like most of the successes to come in the first half of the decade, it's a sitcom. I guess sitcom can reflect changes easier. NBC's Sanford and Son, starring Red Fox and Damon Wilson, is a massive hit, changing fortunes for both black performers and for NBC. Good Times on CBS, another huge hit, and the lesser successful That's My Mama on ABC, each follow two years later, further expanding the black footprint in prime time. So representation is happening, and progress is still progress no matter its shape, but there's a bit of an interesting dynamic at play, a backdoor reinforcement of the stereotypes that representation is supposed to eliminate. Sanford and Son is about a father and son living and working together and barely getting by in Watts, the rundown L.A. section that's still smoldering from a 1965 race rebellion. Good Times is about a black family living in poverty in a Chicago housing project, most likely but never actually referred to as Cabrini Green so poor that in the first episode they face eviction when they can't pay rent. That's my mama? Well, that's about a Washington, D.C. barber whose shop is connected to the house he shares with his sassy, rotund mother, and whose life involves a shuck-and-jive ladies' man, best friend named Junior. Each is well done, each stars talented and or funny people, each doesn't mean to demean, but it's as though black is telegraphed to the white audiences watching as shorthand for rough life. Yeah, white families right now, like the Bunkers and the Waltons, are struggling too, financially, but their struggles aren't really the nuts of their particular shows. And besides, they're just a few of the otherwise doing just fine white families in prime time. The Sanfords and the Evanses and the Curtises, well, they're carrying the African-American ball all alone, and sometimes they seem like they're in their own parks. And to those saying, yeah, but that's the reality these days, the reply should be, Maybe, but it's not the only reality. It all smacks of a bit of primetime segregation by association. To look at the representation in the first half of the decade, not on the sitcoms that have the occasional black guest star or a black supporting player in a regular role, but on the rasher of new so-called black shows which seem to orbit around the being of black, is to say, of course black people are poor. Of course they live in projects. Of course they have rotund, sassy mothers. Of course they shuck and jive. Of course they live in the black sections of Chicago and D.C. and Watts. What else? How else? Where else? 
The answer to all three shows up in January of 1975. Another spinoff from All in the Family, it's the fourth for those counting. The new sitcom called The Jeffersons presents a new kind of black family experience, one with a much brighter, or at least much less oppressive picture for and of black America. One where, for good or ill, and in fairness, in time many in the black community come to declare it as the latter, the being of black is only part of the family Jefferson. The show focuses on and around George and Louise Jefferson. For the past four years, the next-door neighbors to white Archie Bunker and his wife Edith of Queens, New York. They celebrate the growing success of their dry-cleaning business by moving to the affluent Upper East Side of Manhattan. No, I won't be singing it. The first episode is smartly planted in an episode of All in the Family, still TV's number one show. And as the Jeffersons, the family, settle into their deluxe apartment in the sky, the Jeffersons, the show, do the same in Nielsen's top 10. And TV has its first so-called black series that's not predicated on struggle, at least not an economic one. The Jeffersons' real struggle, if any, is a cultural one, invoked in a tried-and-true fish-out-of-water formula right out of the Beverly Hillbillies, or a handful of other shows before it. Here, about a once-just-getting-by family that happens to be black, rather than because they're black, trying to fit in with and among the always-been-wealthy. In fact, beyond the premise-setting early episodes that transition the characters away from all in the family— and beyond the catchy theme song that each week reminds how it took a whole lot of trying just to get up that hill, the sitcom actually rises and falls on cartoonish, off-buffoonish, hard-headed George Jefferson struggling to fit in anywhere with anyone. The Jeffersons is funny before it's anything else, relatable to any demographic, both of which will make it last an incredible 10 years, longer than anyone foresees. If it does deal with race in America, it does so primarily earlier on in its first two seasons, when the move to Manhattan is a new spool of thread used to weave commentary into the scripts about the leaving behind of identity and about Uncle Tom's and about passing, hot-button terms the show really does use. But even here, it doesn't tackle race in the headline issue spotlighting way that All in the Family does. There's no extreme close-ups of dramatic realization. There's no shocking of the audience or the pushing of the envelope. The viewer just comes away aware. In fact, the racism against white people that George is so quick and so proud to display in All in the Family, he's essentially introduced on that show as a black counterpart to Archie Bunker, is toned down in the spinoff, made more comical than confrontational. George is definitely rattled by his son's biracial girlfriend, and by her interracial parents, soon to be his in-laws. But in his own show, the word honky comes out like a sort of comical punctuation mark. Archie's use of the term, on the other hand, of heeb or spick, well, they just come out plain mean, period. Beyond this, traditional sitcom conventions prevail in the Jeffersons, with storylines that center around intra-family conflict, and outside world misunderstandings and insult slinging raspberries that arise out of each. George's ego, Louise's work tamping it down, her other job at the health center, Lionel's engagement and marriage, all the tropes are there. Even those rare, very special episodes, George or Louise reflecting upon or revisiting their less affluent past, 
or Sun Lionel's alcohol-fueled fears of success, they orbit more around the human condition than a racial one. But race does connect in a substantial way to the legacy of the Jeffersons. The sitcom is the first series in television history to feature an interracial couple as part of its cast. Tom and Helen Willis, the parents of son Lionel Jefferson's girlfriend Jenny, and the upstairs neighbors to George and Louise in their east side high-rise. They're played by white actor Franklin Cover and black actress Roxy Roker. That's new. Barely eight years after Loving in Virginia, Loving versus Virginia, a TV show actually features a longtime and happily married interracial couple. Another taboo is smashed. By the way, the story goes that when Roxy Roker is being cast in the part of Helen Willis, she's asked if she'd be comfortable portraying a woman married to a white guy. She responds by showing the casting people a picture of her white husband, Cy Kravitz. Yes, their son is Lenny Kravitz. Everybody knows that. TV's first non-struggling nuclear black family and TV's longest-running black show when it goes off the air in 1985, it actually runs longer than the sitcom it spun from, as well as all the other All in the Family spinoffs. The Jeffersons marks the transition from so-called black shows to shows that just feature a black cast. It's an important distinction. And America's years away from The Cosby Show, which in many ways comes to make race all but irrelevant in prime time, especially on sitcoms. Never nominated in the writing or directing categories for any of its 253 episodes, the Jeffersons wins just two Emmys over the course of 11 seasons. One is for videotape editing. The other is more significant. Isabel Sanford wins in 1981 as Best Lead Actress in a Comedy, and that is a first ever for a black performer. After George Jefferson himself, Sherman Hemsley dies in 2012. The Huffington Post offers this thought in a tribute piece entitled The Jeffersons, How Sherman Hemsley and the sitcom changed the landscape of American television. Quote, The Jeffersons' use of confrontational humor and candid commentary that helped ease the discussion of topics like race and class on American television and beyond is the cornerstone of the show's lasting legacy. Its characters opened doors for future black actors, and its success proved that African-American sitcoms did in fact resonate with general audiences. End quote. We'll leave it up to you to debate the irony of the Jefferson family name. You gotta believe. Hey, send us some questions and feedback and suggestions on Twitter at Believe Podcasts or at Believe.com. That's also where you can get some information on advertising on any Believe show, including this one. Find and download The Good, The Bad, and The TV on Apple, where you can subscribe and rate us, or Spotify, where you can follow us. Or just plain listen for a new drop each Thursday on these sites, or on Stitcher, Luminary, TuneIn, Google Play, and whatever was just invented yesterday. Be sure to like the show all over your social media, too. I'd appreciate that. I'm Jim McCarrens, and we'll move on up again next week. Ciao!
Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.